Sing us the song of your people. Welcome to Snepisode 12 of the Where Are We podcast. I am Orange Wolf, and today we're joined by Barracks, Black Paws, Blue Wolf, Blaze, Storm Dancer, and a special guest, Wolf Unzat. Actually, it's Wolf Vincent, I think. Uh, we'll get into that later. All right, so it's been a while, guys. What's everybody been up to? Mm, about 5'11". <laughs> I did some traveling around, visiting family. I'm back now. Now, Vincent, did, did have you quarantined your badger? Uh, no, he's been away from home. I'm quarantined in my room. Don't worry. <laughs> oh, should I lock the door? And fumigate. Oh. Definitely <laughs> fumigate. It's been entirely too hot, and I haven't seen a single brood X cicada, and I'm bitterly disappointed about it. I'm disappointed that they're not in my current area. They're like an hour north, and it's a real bummer because I don't have time to go up there and see them. But uh, I went up like a week or two ago, and I had a chance to, like, I went to a, a garden center, and they were all over the place screaming and dive bombing, and it was pretty fun. I was a little frustrated because I picked one up, and I was trying to get him to scream, and he just wouldn't do it. But he ended up being my friend, so that's all that matters. Oh, sure. But when I do that in a garden center, people call the police. <laughs> oh, there's a certain joy to having a cicada BFF. Is this from experience? How many did your did your cub have on his face? Was it bear? So he, yeah, he goes out when the annual cicadas start uh, shedding. He goes out and plucks them up while they're defenseless and and dry enough to handle but not dry enough to fly and detaches them to himself <laughs> to his face to his arms to his elbows his shoulders so he's had he's had 15 of them on him at a time sounds like an old friend of mine who used to pick up giant wolf spiders and let them crawl all over him uh, that's a little different <laughs> <laughs> i think I, I personally draw the line there yeah me too <laughs> same no, just just no. Yeah, there's a big difference between cicadas and wolf spiders. <laughs> yeah, cicadas don't know woo, they just scream. So, uh, ba Badger, uh, Wolf and Zant said that it's gonna snow out there? In the mountains. Well, it's summer. Welcome to Colorado. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. It can happen. Mind you, it'll probably last for five minutes, and it's above an elevation of a thousand meters or more. Well, it's supposed to be down to like in the forties this weekend with rain here. Yuck! Oh, goody! Hey, what's wrong with rain? You don't have to shovel rain. You don't have to shovel rain, but I've had enough of it. I've had ten months of rain. Thank you very much. <laughs> You're welcome, very much. Ah. People love their act. All right, Blue, Black Paws, what about you guys? Oh, I had an interesting ex experience uh, doing an interview with uh, Pink Dolphin recently, and the, the, re the results are out, and it uh, seems to have gone okay. Yeah, I, I listened to it, and uh, I thought it was fantastic. I was, uh, I was really happy to uh, see that, that Pink Dolphin had interviewed some of the uh, older members of the community. And yeah, obviously, obviously, a lot, a lot was left on the cutting room floor. Uh, so you know, people could probably put together a um, movie based on what everybody said. I was impressed with his editing. I mean, I know he got like an hour of each person, and I was wondering how in the world was he going to assemble that into an hour segment. But um, he actually did a great job. I was definitely impressed with uh, the the overall recording and how everything kind of intertwined pretty well it was, it was impressive. Brought up a lot of uh, interesting points that I'd, I'd like to kind of follow up on, but I'll give people a chance to listen to it. Uh, I, I thought that it was, it, it was good to have that kind of mature perspective for younger Therians to be able to kind of see what the, the quote unquote gray agenda really is about kind of to let them think about uh, sometimes there is this like, older Therian versus younger Therian 
divide sort of thing going on. And it's really artificial. I think it doesn't need to even exist. So it's good to have media out there where younger Therians can kind of listen to it, take it in and formulate their own opinions about, okay, so this is what's really going on in the community. This is why younger Therians need to communicate with older Therians and so on and so forth. So I thought it was pretty cool from that perspective. Yeah, there's really not as much difference as people would like to to make out. It's, you know, it's a way to fan the flames and get attention in many ways, in my opinion. Um, whereas most of us who are a little bit on the grayer side of uh, at least 35, um, <laughs> we just don't have the energy to give a shit anymore. That's about right, yeah. <laughs> You know, after a certain point, you just kind of lose the drive to prove yourself to others, and you just become content with being yourself. And that's kind of the the transition, the, the, the rite of passage, so to speak, between young adult and mature adult. And I think you see a lot of that in the way people conduct themselves. And I think you also see a lot of plain and simple communication breakdown in a sense of they're using different words and different terms to describe the exact same experiences now. And it creates a lot of arguments and a lot of fights that really are not necessary if you just see through the words and truly absorb the meaning behind those words. A lot of those arguments that happen between the older and the younger generations just aren't necessary. That's true, and I think that kind of echoes not just in the Therian community, but in the wider community. I mean, I had an experience a few years back of... I had to travel down the south for work, and I was having a serious communication problem with uh, a younger, um, up-and-coming engineer. He kind of moved himself a little bit towards leadership roles, and we just were... I, I could see we were talking very similar language, but we were talking past each other a lot, and sat in a room with him painfully for three hours, and whiteboarded out a bunch of things and said, here's what I'm thinking. And I said, draw what you're thinking. And he drew it. And I pointed out that our ideas were basically the exact same thing, except I had one layer abstracted higher. And when I pointed this out, he's like, oh, well, why would you do that? It's like, well, <laughs> this gives you a little bit more control from a management side of this stuff. Oh, well, that'd be a good idea. Like, I know. <laughs> there is no problem that cannot be solved with an additional layer of abstraction. Actually, a whiteboard is the real solving. Yeah, the whiteboard is the magic. It's funny because, like, my mate and I were trying to figure out, oh, we got a new stained glass piece, and we're trying to figure out how to hang it up. It's uh, the way that our window is positioned and, like, our support structures in the house are. It, it was geometrically interesting to figure out how to get it to hang and have it be centered and accurate. And same thing, like, two different kinds of engineers, uh, mechanical and civil, trying to, like, discuss how this should be the best done and it ended up being a uh yeah we just kind of went to the whiteboard and drew a bunch of pictures and we're like oh that's what you meant and it yeah fine um blue i'm kind of triggered did you literally just say 35 is old i said the grayer <laughs> side of 35 i think there is somebody said that 30 is the new 40 these days <sighs> he was being polite <laughs> canceled <laughs> Y'all know I'm on the other side of 40 anyways. Right. Rolling down the hill now at this point. Uh, Yeah, the problem is you know, when you, you roll your ankle in the process. I know that all too well. <laughs> Aging sucks. I do not recommend it. So so what you guys are saying is when, once you hit 40, you need to really have a practiced, balanced approach toward life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because you can roll everything, mental, physical. Yeah, you'll you'll roll joints that you didn't uh, that came out wrong. Um, Cancer. Uh, yeah. You get the point, though. <laughs> Th things move in ways you didn't expect them to uh, in the body, and sometimes you need to roll a joint to take care of that. <laughs> I uh, I hit forty, gained another point or three in stamina, and I got badger. <laughs> <laughs> I quit smoking just a little over exactly a year ago now. Congrats. I've put on at least 15 pounds since then. And I'm having this bizarre experience where I'm starting to outgrow pants and shorts and stuff now. I used to be this absolute rake, this 
total beanpole of a person with no mass whatsoever. <laughs> I'm like, um, yeah. You know, I jumped from 165 to 210 within a year. And I had this delightful experience of standing outside in the winter without a shirt on and feeling warm inside and feeling ice crystallize on my skin. It was great. That's actually a really good point. Yeah. I can't have my fur, but at least I can have a bit of fat. <laughs> yeah, I'm still calling mine the 2020-20. Only 20? Uh, yeah, we'll go with that. <laughs> I never really gained or lost any over the year. 20 kilograms. I, I, I had the uh, misfortune of being on antidepressants, which probably didn't help. But yeah, <laughs> it's nice to be back at the gym, though. Uh, it, probably it was for the best because kind of like Blaze is saying about himself, like I used to be like a bean pole. So now it's I'm kind of more filled out. So it, it doesn't, you know, it's fine. Like my dad used to say, I don't mind having a little bit of a relaxed mechanics muscle. something to lean on (laughs) the lover's pillow the tool shed (laughs) my my cats definitely don't mind at all (laughs) anybody else been up to anything fun Uh, like I implied there I I rolled my ankle really really well uh, quite a while ago and have I'm now probably about 90% uh, getting back to some normality here and, you know, don't need a cane or really need a brace anymore to get around, thankfully, and finished off my most recent class of my master's and and pissed off about that for other reasons. (coughs) Yes, yes, yes. Uh, A passing grade is still pissing me off. Congratulations. So, Do you want to tell them what your passing grade is? My passing grade was an A-. I missed an A by 0.8 points. Because she wasn't grading on a curve, and it was a subjective grading on the project, even though she said she was completely objective grader. Forgive me if I don't have tremendous <laughs> sympathy. My heart pumps purple kiss for you. My GPA has dropped down to like a 3.98 now. Oh, he's never going to recover from this. Oh, no. I'll lose some sleep tonight for you. Well, it's interesting, though, because I know, like, I, uh, when I was in college, not going for a master's by any degree, um, I had a lot of anxiety trying to maintain that 4.0, and I was afraid all the time that something was going to, like, ding it, and it was just going to be messed up. But, like, in hindsight, I kind of wish something had, because at that point, I would have realized that, hey, okay, um, you don't need to strive for that perfect grade. It's okay. Like, it still rounds up anyway. You're going to be okay. Uh, I, I... I aced the goddamn legal course and I can't get through a goddamn statistics course, but I will say I was talking to a math PhD friend of mine and uh, was explaining it. And then she started, she looked at me, she goes, I know all the words you're saying. I hate them all. I said, <laughs> Why is that? She goes, statistics is not math. Well, in a way she's right. Statistics is problem solving that uses mathematical tools. Yes, and and she, you know, her thesis was in abstract algebra, and even she can't figure out what the hell she wrote then. So, <laughs> so I like I prefer the precision of a calculus or something like that. I I do not like the fuzziness of statistics, though it's useful. I don't like it. Well, that's why it's there for the objective and concrete is what you're leaning toward then. If you put a number into, into a calculus, a, a derivation, or an integration, you know what the answer is. Even if it's infinity, you know what the goddamn answer is. Statistics, it's like, maybe. Differential <laughs> equations, where there's an infinite number of possible solutions to different problems. Well, in an integration, you've got to figure out that constant. Every time I divide by zero, I come out with coyote. <laughs> well, that's what you get. <laughs> that explains everything, actually. Yeah. <laughs> it kind of does. And about sums up my mathematical skills. <laughs> so, and my, my pup has uh, finished her, her school for the year, and we survived the COVID year, and we're back. We were back, actually, in full session by the end of it. So, on to the next year, and through the summer, and... All that fun stuff. So summer will go very, very fast, no doubt. It's it's certainly nice to see things are returning to normal. Um, 
for the first time in like a year and a half, I hung out with a friend that I hadn't seen. So it's, it's like, yeah, I just had that experience recently too. I've got two local friends and I saw them twice in the past year. So it's been, it's going to be good to get back on track with that. And it's now the end of June. So I'm looking at going walkabout like I do every summer. It's practically a, a routine, a religion for me is that every summer I have to just drop everything, forget everything and go out in the forest and go camping for as many weeks as I possibly can get away with. So it looks like my first trip is going to be hopefully for around the waning new moon in a week from now. And then I'm going to try and incorporate trips to hit at least each one of the moon phases during the summertime so that I can do some proper ritual work out there in the bush where it should be done. Aside from that, I've just been plugging away at editing my novel, hoping to get that published before the end of the year. And aside from that, I spend a heck of a lot of time online on Discord with my pack mates nowadays, which is a really big change for me because not even two years ago, I was just about completely alone. So it's been uh, it's been a lot of adjustments. There's been some turmoil points and some moments of being overwhelmed by everything that's going on. But overall, I just feel like I've been moving from strength to strength. And uh, this podcast is just another expression of that. So that's where I'm at lately. I'm uh, getting ready to put everything down and go walk about. I think you realize that if you ever get stuck, I'm just going to be there and grab you by the scruff and put you in some other situation. So it's best to just figure things out anyway. Yeah, I kind of got gathered that from <laughs> the first experience. Don't forget to share pictures. You live in an incredible yes. vista. Yes, I do. And I hope to actually, in the future, start organizing a howl at this location because it's just an absolute gemstone. What the howl? Yeah, I suppose after the last two years, everybody's forgotten. <laughs> it's funny. I've actually been uh, linking the recording that we did on Howl's, and I'm like, oh my god, that was so long ago. <laughs> I think it's wonderful that they're happening again. There was a, a long period of time where no one was hosting them. Years. I wonder why that is. It wasn't just COVID. No, it, it was it was before COVID. The community drifted apart. Yeah, that that that's you know, kind of isolated itself into little groups that made a lot of sense at the time and the infighting and the demise of HWW and the battles on various forums and things like that. Uh, just History does repeat itself. <laughs> yes, it does. Sadly. Well, that's the thing about it. We developed into groups and we were happy living with other wares but we didn't think about all those people out there were, that were still floating around. It's true. And we had to come back to that understanding. Yeah, because during that period, I was living in a warehouse. I had local Therian friends who I hung out with, the, the offline community. Mm -hmm. We all float down where? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you're absolutely right. That, that That's what happened. Uh, I'm not really sure what... Cause I think something sparked Traveler to start doing his howl around the same time that I kind of got the itch to start trying to do the Virginia howl. And it was like both of us around the same time were like, hey, you know, why aren't these things happening? So surely coincidence, there could be nothing more to that, possibly. <laughs> well, a lot of the older folks came back around the same time, too, so that might have something to do with it. I've, I've noticed that pattern that there's been a kind of a, a return, a resurgence of, uh, of people that have been on hiatus for a while, and they're now drifting back. Yeah, I left the um, Southeast Hall in 2013 when I moved out to Colorado, and I left it. Uh, there were some people that were going to continue it. I think they did for like three years. Um, but then it just sort of dropped and I was a little bit disappointed in that, but now they're picking up again and I'm, uh, got some hope for it. I think at this point, like for me, I, I, you know, a few years ago, if you would have asked me, I would have been like, I, there's no way I can organize one of those things. It, it's not nearly as complicated as you would think it is. Mm -hmm. uh, now coordinating schedules with Therians and wares is, is certainly like herding cats. I'll say it. It's impossible. <laughs> that's why you. That's why you don't do that. <laughs> yeah, basically. Um, so just you know, it's best to uh, just reserve a campsite and just 
let things happen, however. Yeah. <laughs> Here's where I'm going to be and at this time. But uh, I think it's good that people are picking them up, too. And, and I think the the more people start to do these things, the more it's going to help other people in the community feel empowered to do these things. And it's going to be like a, a beneficial cycle. So that's pretty cool. Um, I know, Bear, we need to figure out a Pennsylvania how at some point. Yeah, I know there has been talk of, of one. Yeah, and uh, uh, all you listeners out there that, that, that would like to do a howl and stuff and have questions, just feel free to reach out to us and we'll help out how we can. I'm asking questions and I'm reaching out <laughs> because I definitely want to host one on Vancouver Island, BC, Canada. As far as I know, there's no other Therians around me here and it just seems really bizarre because it's such an incredibly Therian-friendly environment. Yeah. We got We got rivers and lakes and oceans and campsites and anything you can possibly want all within an hour's drive of home base it's just unbelievable and if i had if i had the resources i could reserve an entire campground or an entire group of lodges even for a how if it got big enough the thing there is that since it's kind of like quote-unquote therian territory in a degree there probably are a lot of Therians up there who just don't see a need to go online to look for things. So that's an unfortunate by byproduct of that. And I think that is again in to some degree a byproduct of people using different words to describe the same thing. Right. It's also the um the amount of uh different forums we have out there that people are on that there needs to be like a central hub or location to where someone can say, hey, I'm having a meetup here at this place at this time on this date. Canceled, canceled, Badger. No, canceled. You're one of those people. No, like meetup.com used to be that way. I, yeah, I agree. Um, I, don't, <laughs> yes, don't, I don't know why these things are, and I, I say this with uh, realizing, so the Virginia Howl this year, I've not really advertised anywhere. Um, just too much going on. But like, in the past, I've, I've tried to make an effort to make sure that people from kind of all over the community that I can get in touch with feel like they can be, you know, they can attend these things. Um, I do think it's important to, to try not to isolate those kinds of meetup things. Um, hopefully, now that COVID's over with, again, maybe we can even do like day meetup things or something like that. So I don't know. There are options out there. Uh, I just think it's good to try to get people from various parts of the community included. Speaking of Badger, did you want to plug your how for next year? Oh, uh, yes, yes. Um, I am planning on holding the Colorado HAL in June of 2022. Uh, dates are still tentative. I'm still trying to uh, secure the campsite for us. Uh, if you have any more, if anyone has any questions or stuff, feel free to uh, shoot me. Uh, you can shoot it in our email. Where are we podcast at gmail.com? Uh, I don't. I don't know if you want to give your personal email out too bad, or you can if you want to. Well, yes, uh, tstormdancer at gmail.com. If you have any questions about the uh, Colorado Howl, or we're also trying to do get together with the local Therians here to do a monthly meetup here in the Denver area, uh, shoot me an uh, email if you're interested at tstormdancer at gmail.com. Monthly meetups would be kind of cool. That's That's interesting. Uh, the Virginia Howl is going to be from September 19th, or excuse me, 17th to 19th. Uh, kind of keeping that low-key-ish, we have a considerable amount of attendees already. But if you are interested, feel free to drop a line to me, or you can email the where we pod, or, yeah, where we podcast at gmail.com. And we'll see if we can make any accommodations. Uh, still kind of want to get these things going. Sorry, this one's been kind of like low-key and quiet, but it's just been a crazy year. So if you are interested, drop us a line and we'll see what we can do. Anybody else have anything else? I think that's about it, yeah. Did you just say a boot? I think it's a boot, it. <sighs> it's a boot time, eh? Blaze has a segment he wants to get into, but I realize we're kind of like 30 minutes into our recording. Uh, Wolf Vincent, who in the hell are you? I don't know. <laughs> Join the club. I am a, an elderware. <laughs> I am 67 years old, and um, I became aware of my 
uh, lycanthropy when I was in the 20s, just as I was going into uh, college. And I had a lot of resources then, but I didn't have any idea that there were other Therians. As far as I knew, I was the only one. And uh, there were others around, but uh, I just didn't know about them. Uh, so I took 20 years to get through college. And then I got the job that I wanted, and I was a professional rehab specialist for another 20 years. And then I moved, uh, retired and moved to Colorado. Interesting. So, so tell me a bit more about when you first started to experience your lycanthropy. What was that like? Well, I first started experiencing my therianthropy in high school because I went through a brief horse period. Uh, it just happened. I didn't really feel like it was anything drastic, but then it sort of morphed into uh, um, wolf. And I actually started splitting. I got up to nine altars until 1978 when everything merged. And since then, I've been a contarian. Um, I've been open about my uh, therianthropy uh, since college, uh, at least since 1975. And uh, I was open about it through my uh, professional career. I hate to break stride here, but... Blue Wolf made a good point. Are, are you technically a silverware? No, I'm actually I'm black. My uh, phantom is black all the way through. Nice answer. <laughs> <laughs> so it just started to arise spontaneously in your, what, what you would have been your teens or 20s then? Uh, yeah, before that, I, uh, I actually didn't have a, very much of an internal image of myself. Uh, I would have dreams, and I either couldn't see myself, or if I did see myself, I really couldn't see uh, my face. Yeah. And it just sort of uh, congealed in my high school uh, years. And as you started to get older, what kinds of ways did it start to like um, affect your lifestyle? Like, How have you managed to integrate your therianthropy into your lifestyle? Honestly, I never tried. It it for me it just fell together um and it may be geographical i grew up in a mill village and people were allowed to be weird there uh people just sort of ignored the uh the eccentricities uh and then i went to auburn university where people were uh, really open and then i ended up in selma which is the um the heart of uh, the civil rights movement. And people don't react to differences much there. They've had enough of that. Right. Uh, and I was also very uh, beneficial to the community. I've always been a community activist. Um, I helped uh, found several uh, community organizations which uh, worked against uh, uh, violent crime and I worked with the Boy Scouts, and I worked with the church, and um, I worked with the local Department of Human Resources. So people saw me as a, a benefit to the community, so I could do pretty much whatever I wanted to do, and that just sort of shrug it off. And all the research that you've been doing over the years, was that kind of a, a kind of a side hobby that you've been doing just because you happen to have access to that kind of information? Or how, how did that end up working out? Yeah, when I was at Auburn, I uh, had access to the largest research uh, library in the United States at that time. And uh, I buried myself in it, and I looked up everything I could find about uh, lycanthropy, which therianthropy, I knew nothing about. I knew that there were leopard uh, people in um, South America, and I knew there were lion people in Africa and all that. But I, had, I, I was just doing it for myself, and I sort of hate that because there was a lot of citations and stuff that I just lost. Uh, I still remember finding different information, but I can't tell where I found it because right. the citations are gone. I have stacks of paper here and uh, a lot of digital copy, which I'm still going through. But, um, but back then, I was just doing it for my own uh, interest. Right. Kind of sounds a little bit like um, my drive uh, for trying to explore different um, spiritual beliefs and religions, trying to understand 
what this Therian experience of mine was. Was there any other people who experienced it? Was there any guidelines on what to do with it? That kind of thing. Hmm. Well, now that's one good thing about being isolated is there are no guidelines. <laughs> exactly. So I just kind of went on this self-guided search and became a kind of eclectic for a while. Just kind of absorbing different uh, truths that felt right. Mm-hmm. And I basically was in that stage for about a decade and then things kind of flatlined. And it wasn't until last year where I started to feel like, okay, things are happening now. I've been broken out of this rut. And all of a sudden, all these new things started happening. I joined the Therian community and it made me realize that just being an eclectic wasn't enough for me. I needed to get more engaged. I needed to get more committed but I didn't know to what. And by myself, I didn't really feel comfortable jumping in with both feet kind of thing. So that's the thing about it. When I, I was almost immediately in the offline community when I found out that the community existed and I took on uh, some responsibilities for the offline community. I started collecting information for the Therian community. And that's really sort of what brought me into it like real hard. Right. Anything else you want to add about your history before we move on to the uh, the segment discussion? Oh, no, I've got 67 years of it. I don't need to get into that. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Well, the, um, the fact that you had the ability and the drive, the interest to actually sit down and immerse yourself in that library and go looking through all that stuff is really important to the rest of the community now because the rest of us are pretty much standing right next to Clueless when it comes to that kind of information. So Therian Timeline and the research that you've done in general is really valuable, and we're hoping that uh, we can build on it in the future. Well, I hope it's useful. Uh, that's the reason I brought up the uh, or started the website, was to collect uh, substantive information for the um, community as I came by it. And that includes research from uh, Google Scholar, and uh, things like that. I'm always adding to it. Right. So it's a continuous work in progress. Oh, yeah. As long as I live, I'll, uh, uh, as long as the uh, website lives, I will uh, keep uh, trying to find new information. Uh, there's a lot of stuff being added on as far as uh, the community today, uh, like from the International Anthropomorphic Research uh, Project and other people that are, are publishing papers and stuff, and I'm trying to keep up with those. And now, for our recurring segment, Therians Through Time, 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 Time. So we're going to now dig into section one of the Therians Through Time segment. We are exploring the possible signs, repeat possible signs of Therianthropy which stretch back right back to the dawn of humanity as we know it. I mean, as far as we can tell, the only thing that might be older than therianthropy is fire. It goes back that far. So segment one of the Therians Through Time, we are focusing in on this prehistoric period, looking at what little evidence has been left behind that might suggest that people have been saying, I am an animal for as much as maybe 75,000 years. Are we sure this fire came first? I feel like there might have been a coyote therian who helped. Never mind. I think that I think that was a uh, uh, power animal. <laughs> there was actually, um, I remember now, a story about coyote bringing fire to the tribe, and right. I found that to be a really, really interesting origin story. There's also a story about Coyote convincing the people to throw them their firstborn and eating them up so he can save the world, and he keeps doing it, and they keep doing it for him. Well, y'all will need to ask Coyote about that. <laughs> we need some help. <laughs> no, no we don't need to ask him. <laughs> <laughs> well, he'll tell you the way it is. <laughs> it might scare you. <laughs> he'll tell you the way it is. The problem is interpreting what he says. Well, that is true, too. But that's actually true of uh, ancient history. And that's one of the big problems. Can you elaborate on that a bit? Yeah. Um, everything we know about the past, and, and there's uh, new movements coming up. Like, they're just beginning 
to uh, analyze DNA, not from uh, fossils, but from the dirt that they died in. Um, they're beginning to be able to pull out the DNA and, and uh, analyze that, see what was there. They're beginning to look at uh, like rock art and cave art differently than they ever had before. And there's a lot of controversy about how to do that. Everything that you do look at back then has to be interpreted. And the only way you can come up with a rational interpretation is to bring everything together and see what produces a coherent picture. And you're still not sure that's exactly the way it happened. Right. But it's the best we can do. And it also depends very strongly on our ability to actually put ourselves in that, that person's shoes, so to speak. To... And people are talking about that, too. It's just recently come to people, uh, anthropologists' mind that up to this point, we've been reading these people as though they were us. And their mentality, their, their daily thoughts may be completely different. Yeah, everything is interpreted through our lens at this point. Mm -hmm. It's pretty difficult to escape from that too. Uh, it takes um, it takes a pretty talented mind to be able to drop everything that you know and put it aside and visualize something that you don't know. I mean, it's it's pretty difficult to do, even in the best of circumstances. So no matter what we do, we have to admit that we'll never actually know for sure what was going through these people's minds when they were drawing on the cave walls a figure in five steps that transformed from human to animal. That was possibly the most provocative image of the ones that I've looked at so far. It was just unmistakably, this is not geared at simple depictions of animals. This is not hunting magic. This is clearly some kind of shamanic experience that's being portrayed on the cave walls. And I think we were talking at one point, you were saying, uh, Wolf, that the experts are starting to look at these things as more expressions of shamanic experiences versus something else, right? Right. Uh, there's a movement uh, called psychoneurological uh, analysis where um, people are looking at these designs and such as things that happen inside of people's heads, they're uh, as vision and things instead of uh, events that happen out in the world. There's a lot of controversy about that because some of the things, uh, for instance, in the in the uh, French caves, look like fairly obviously that they are recording events that happen. But then, right along aside it, it looks like they are something otherworldly or something, yeah. and. And they're beginning to look at it as uh, common reactions that happen inside of people's minds. Uh, for instance, in the dark, when you rub your eyes, uh, that you see different images. Or if you uh, have a drug experience or altered states of consciousness can bring up different experiences. But this is very debated. So we don't know how much of this is uh, relevant. And let's assume for a minute, let's just assume for a minute that the theory is correct, that not necessarily all of the images, but a good percentage of these images were meant to express some kind of shamanic experience, some kind of internal vision. If that's the case, is it reasonable to assume that some of those people were sitting there identifying themselves as that animal? Uh, yeah, actually, uh, that's you run into that over and over, uh, not not only in in this particular movement, but people that are countering it. A lot of times they're saying that, well, if you look back in the records, uh, you see more and more and more as you go back of less division between humans and animals. Right. The the more ancient people didn't distinguish between themselves and uh, the animals around, or even the earth around. Uh, animism is a constant in, in that time. And that's the belief that everything has spirit. Everything is to some extent alive. And uh, even panpsychism, which is the belief that everything has a mind. And a lot of uh, these cultures assumed that uh, that they were not the only people that had consciousness and uh, could respond to, to other people. Yeah, that, um, that phenomenon of humans identifying themselves as something other than animals actually didn't emerge until after the Bronze Age, as far as I can tell. Mm. 
Can I, if I can add something, um, you mentioned one particular piece that that five step transformation imagery. Yeah. Um, there was one that I had seen. There's a again back to these caves in France. There's several of them. One of them is called Le Trois Frères, and there's a uh, an artwork on the wall there. They call the Sorcerer, and it is a the body of a deer, but the legs, the hind legs, and the forelegs are human like the the deer legs come down and become human feet and the, yes. the 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 forearms come down and become human hands and the head is a is an admixture of human and deer and that image struck me as such a resonant therianthropic image and many of the anthropologists who talk about it uh, they describe it and they say, oh, well, it's hunting magic or whatever. And that's, but to me, that is definitely a Therianthropic image. And there was other cave art, going back to what Wolf said, about, that is like geometric, non-representational sort of zigzags and triangles and expanding patterns that are very similar to the mandalas of Tibetan art. Right. And those all do seem to lead to altered states of consciousness and many of those kind of altered states of consciousness you see in world religions do have echoes of therianthropy where it is, you know, people take on a different personality and different characteristics as a result of those altered states of consciousness. And I, I don't know if there were, were any specific issues of to that that Wolf wanted to address any further. Well, I have some of the recent readings that I've uh, done. I run into this uh, three stages of shamanism where the first stage is you just see designs and the second stage is it becomes iconic. It becomes uh, pictures of uh, things that you see. And in the third stage, uh, it becomes very deep and the icons and the images connect. And that's where you get into deep dream time. Uh, where things are just completely different from uh, what we see in, in real time. Right. Thanks. There's a lot of this stuff coming out right now, and I'm trying to digest it. I'm, I'm just, just currently getting into uh, the, the new uh, approaches to anthropology. Right. There's been a, there seems to be a particularly strong focus in anthropology from this time period in the European continent. But what do we know about what was happening on the other continents at roughly the same time period? Well, you have to come up a little bit further. Uh, North America, they're looking at the, uh, the rock art in uh, the Pacific Northwest. And that is fairly recent. It's like there are people that know the people that used to make the rock art. And so they don't only have the art itself, but they have they they have some connection with what those people say about their art, and it looks a lot like some of the older art. So if you assume that the same uh, principles are going on, you have a much more direct connection to to um, the production of of these arts. Right, and that's kind of another vein that we're trying to angle at with the segment is in that. If a person was having therianthropic experiences 10,000 or 20,000 years ago, how would they try to express that? Would they pick up a piece of charcoal and try to express their most important experience of their life on the cave wall? Seems pretty reasonable to me. Well, and, and they do uh, address that. They say that a shaman, the visions are like dreams. So if they don't record it immediately after coming out of the altered state, it's gone. Yeah. So they're saying the reason that they did this rock art and this cave art and all is to record the things that happened to them, not only for their own benefit, but for the benefit of their community to, to know what the shaman has brought back. There, there is a bias uh, in uh, anthropological community that the only people that can can make creative expression is uh, Homo sapien, and a lot of these uh, cave arts and and such in Europe comes from before the time that uh, Homo sapien came into Europe. So they're having a lot of problem with explaining a lot of the, like the cave art in, in France. 
and such, because that was before Homo sapien. It was when Neanderthal was still there. Right. Um, I think human occupation of North America began, what, 40,000 years ago, something like that? Something like that, yeah. And something similar for South America? Uh, There's some strange things in South America. They may have actually found some um, hominids before uh, hominids migrated over the Bering Strait. So they don't know how long that happened or what kind of production happened there. It's hard to say that there's any connection between the um, hominids that were here before and the ones that came over from Asia. Right. So one thing I find particularly fascinating is that, and this this is something that I've encountered again since I more recently began studying Druidry, is that these older, more shamanic practices have some remarkable continuity in their structure no matter where you go in the world to look at them there are things that they have in common well i i have noticed that um in fact uh i've seen several uh notes and books uh there's a introduction to shamanism uh by a, a margaret something another i can't remember her last name but uh it's in my bibliography but um the shamans in asia uh several of those cultures point to the west as the origin of their shamanism and they uh learned it from people that were more animal than human right so there is probably a continuity and you know as far as i know they may have seen the the cave paintings and that's what gave them the idea for the shamanism but um there is that connection somehow. There's also, it really begs the idea that um, these people may very likely have had no contact with each other, and yet they come up with the same idea. So it kind of really begs the question of whether or not some kind of collective unconscious or some kind of spiritual network has got everything linked together, and that's how these same patterns keep showing up again and again and again around the world. Well, of course, that would be right in... uh in line with uh, Carl Jung's uh, theories. So that hasn't gone completely out of, uh, out of our understanding of psychology and all. I believe that therianthropy is an archetype. I believe there's a lot of parallels between what therians today experience in an organic way. And by what I mean organic is like before they contact the community, before they're influenced, they have these unique experiences. And when you look at the basic pattern of those experiences and you compare them with some of these older descriptions of shamanic experiences, it's really hard to tell the difference. Yeah, and that's one thing that I've been thinking about a lot. If you look at the really, really ancient uh, cultures that had shamans, and you look at the more modern ones like the ones in uh, Russia, the older ones tended to have whole cultures that may have had certain people that were shamans, but they were, uh, everybody had shamanic experiences. For instance, uh, like people passing from different stages of life to another, they went on uh, journeys, shamanic journeys, in order to collect energy uh, power. And uh, so at least back then, there were whole cultures that were shamanic. And of course, the most recent one um, in uh, classic literature was the Nuri uh, that was uh, written about by Herodotus. I was just about to add up. Yeah, The Nuri were particularly fascinating. An entire tribe that transformed into wolves at a specific time once per year. Yeah, uh, and we have to be careful about that because Herodotus didn't even believe believe in them. He heard from the Scythians uh, about this tribe, and we don't know if he really got the message that they were trying to convey. These were merchants that were coming in. They had their own language. They had their own thought processes, and Herodotus probably was uh, had the same vulnerability to the biases of thinking that they thought in the same way that he did as we do. So um, we do have to be a little bit careful about interpreting what was actually going on there. Uh, I suspect that the um, uh, 
the Nuri were shamanic and they were doing journeys. They weren't actually uh, changing into wolves. Yeah, the, it's sort of like the game of telegraph, how the message changes after it goes from person to person. Yeah, but um, wholesale um, shared shamanic traditions and altered states of consciousness that affect an entire group is not an unusual thing. That's something that you see in First Nations cultures as frequently as well. That's true. Uh, like the the um, Pacific Northwest cultures, they did that. A lot, yes. The uh, I read a little bit about um, the Pacific Northwest ritual, the wolf dance, Kukwali. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, very intense, and it was very obvious that not just the wolves, but the whole community in general was meant to be as intimately involved in it as possible. And uh, the Cheyennes had the bear dance, which was uh, very similar. Um, in that the whole community was involved in it. Mm-hmm. So we see this kind of gradual progression, although not a, a smooth one, of course, but it's gradual progression from individualized animalistic practices in the early, early stages towards as you get closer to the Bronze Age, like about 6,000, 4,000 years ago, yeah. starting to see more organization that's going on. Well, and then again, you were uh, seeing more organization in the communities. They were beginning to uh, build cities, and uh, they were beginning to specialize with everything. And so at the same time that um, our material lives were changing, spiritual lives were starting to change as well. Yeah. I, as we begin to talk about uh, changes in history, it will become clear that... Uh, there was a therianthropy going on um, through history that is very similar to what you see in, uh, in our forums uh, today. The only difference is, is that it was expressed differently, it was recorded differently, and because it was a completely different world back then, it was no doubt experienced and expressed differently. Right. I mean, back then, it's really important for us to remember that back then, there was no scientific knowledge. Back then, those beliefs they held were absolutely everything, and they put their full power into them, 100%. There were no doubts. If a person back then believed that they were turning into a wolf, then that's what they experienced. Yeah. So in a way, I think that's one of the really key critical things that's changed about our psyche and the way we perceive the world in general is that we are now trained to be this hyper-skeptic. Well, that's true, but I also think that as Therians, we've experienced a change in our psychoneurology, which allows us to uh, sort of take a step back toward um, not questioning our um, experiences and not filtering it through our, our word processors, uh, the things in our brain that changes what we know into words. That's a common, that, that's the normal thing for humans is to live in our words, um, to express everything that we experience through our words. And I don't think that's always been true. And I think that as Therians, we have uh, tapped into the ability to, to uh, see the world, um, not through words, but through our feelings. And through our inner experiences as well. We're not just limited to what we see and experience with our five senses. Well, the brain is a pattern processor. It's not a word processor. We have peripherals, uh, like in our uh, temporal lobes, that translate the patterns that our brain perceives into language. And if there is uh, like a, a looser connection between them and the uh, temporal lobe is more of a uh, uh, external peripheral than with most people, then we're not tied to that. Sure. I think uh, one of the things that has been understood about the human brain is called plasticity, our ability to adjust our brain to our situations. Uh, the human brain is extremely flexible, but then when you start limiting it by the way that it produces information, then you start limiting that plasticity. And a lot of people have mentioned how children are a lot more plastic than adults. We learn to ignore certain things because they don't fit into our worldview. Um, there again, I think we're, the Therians are more plastic. 
are able to to get out of our worldview and see other uh, angles. And that, again, ties us back into what the worldview of these ancient people might have looked like, because back then they didn't see a distinction between human and nature or between human and animal. Right. I think I think that we have learned to separate ourselves from nature. So we see the world in two different spheres. We see it as the, the um, civilized world and the world of nature. Uh, I don't think that was ever intended to happen. <laughs> I don't think that is uh, the correct way to, to view the world. And maybe we've just appeared in order to fix that. I've kind of had that um, speculation on numerous occasions is that therianthropy itself is kind of a some kind of subconscious backlash that's going on is trying to reconnect us with this way of looking at the world that we lost mm. and kind of like trying to evolve back towards where we came from and go in a different direction. Yeah, that's, I've been thinking in that, that way too. I do think we need to get more in touch with our ancient selves. And that's one thing that we're sort of not doing we're getting so wrapped up in our everyday life that uh, we're not seeing the bigger picture of our potentialities. Well, I absolutely agree with that. Uh, the kind of day-to-day -day rat race that our, our lives have become has turned into something that's extremely damaging and extremely limiting to our ability to connect with something more than ourselves. So somewhere around 4,000 years ago, before Christ, something changed. Humanity transitioned out of the Stone Age into the Bronze Age and began building cities and stuff. And around this time, we're going to end off the segment discussion with a quick little talk about the Epic of Gilgamesh. Mm. Because the Epic of Gilgamesh, as far as I understand, is the oldest written account of a shapeshifter that we know of. I would say that's true, but there's several, <laughs> there's several variations on Gilgamesh. Right. And, and there's actually two accounts in there. There's uh, Enkidu, which was the animal man that Gilgamesh befriended. But in some of the, um, the versions, there's a, a inset story about, uh, I think it was Ishtar, who a hunter uh, tried to seduce, and she turned him into a wolf and sicked her dogs on him. Right. So it was in people's minds back then, certainly. And that's basically the point that I was getting at, is that by the time civilization as we know it started to develop, shape-shifting and the beliefs in um, altered states of consciousness and the beliefs in being becoming animal, those things were all very, very, very much well entrenched in the human experience. And it's something that didn't go away for thousands of years after that. I don't think it's uh, gone away today. We've still got the um, werewolf movies and stuff. We just encapsulate this uh, this common experience into characters. Right. We kind of disassociate from it and saying that it's just your imagination, so it's okay to accept it that Or even it's somebody else, it's not me. Yeah. <laughs> right. And honestly, I think... I don't know how right I am about this one. This is my own theory. Um, but I think that therianthropy comes from the Neanderthal. I don't think that uh, sapiens really experienced it that much. You don't see a lot of it in the old stuff, say in Africa, where uh, Homo sapiens uh, came from. You do see it in uh, like uh, male societies, like the line men, and uh, people like that, but it's usually isolated in these societies. Um, and they've also found that Neanderthal was also present in uh, Africa. So I'm not sure what to make of that. Well, it's hard to say. And ultimately, it uh, doesn't really matter in the end, because one way or another, by the time history itself began, we already know that it had been established pretty much everywhere. Right. It's in our minds, regardless. And the fact that it just keeps coming up and coming up and coming up in isolated groups kind of suggests that it's something intrinsic, something natural that arises spontaneously. Yeah. Just like we see in Therians today. Like even now, we're encountering Therians who have evolved in isolation for their entire lives. 
And then they show up, they find the community, and you examine their experiences, and you see the same patterns over and over. Sure, there's plenty of differences and variations and nuances, but the same basic patterns keep showing up, and those same patterns are also found in shamanic practice. Right. And I think they are the same patterns. I think I agree. So I think by looking back in time at what little evidence we have and looking at it through this lens, it makes it seem to us like we're not just some kind of new age phenomena. It's not some kind of bizarre, extraneous phenomena. And this is something that's been going on since the beginning. Incense Tumblr. <laughs> 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 since the beginning of tumblr right i just said we all floated down here we all tumbled down here i guess yeah because the community is five years old right <laughs> yeah thank you that was face paw worthy <laughs> uh, yeah well now that is one thing that uh sort of a question in my head why do we just suddenly pop up because you don't see a whole lot of uh, reality-based fairy anthropy between uh, the 15th century and the 20th century. You see a lot of clinical lycanthropy. You see some clinical lycanthropy, but most of that is squeezed up into the 20th century. You didn't see a lot of that before then. So what happened to us? I think a lot of the people, our people that were experiencing it during those centuries, went into hiding out of fear of the church. That's the best guess I can make. And I'm not after, really sure. After that, after the church started losing influence, it's, they went into hiding out of fear of ridicule from science and atheists and others, right? It's just this general trend of oppression began somewhere around, I'm going to say, a thousand years ago. Uh, well, the yeah, 15th century. Uh, we we got to save something for the for the second part, the third part. Yeah, we're not going to get too much into detail on that right yet. Yeah. I also have some hypotheses about why we may have seen that that reduction in Therian presence in history during those times, too. We're going to talk about that the second or third time we visit the segment. Oh, must go. Anything else to add for the prehistory? Any other last thoughts, anybody? I don't think so. There is a lot of information out there. If anybody's interested in looking into it, uh, it's there. Any clues or tips that you found useful in actually finding that information? Yeah, don't just look for therianthropy or werewolves or anything like that. Look for anything that might be related to it, like shamanism, uh, Nuri, anything that you can think of. And look on places like Google Scholar, because you actually do get academic uh, papers and things there. As opposed to those YouTube videos. Well, YouTube and the internet in general. I mean, I like Wikipedia because it has bibliographies, but even those bibliographies can uh, be biased in having papers and such that reflect the the writer's viewpoints. Right. So you have to be careful about the biases that uh, even exist in research. And also the Therian timeline. I have a, uh, a bib an annotated bibliography for both therianthropy and shamanism so uh it's got uh papers and books and stuff uh listed there and it's constantly being updated you said yeah yeah i'm adding stuff to it all the time cool good to know hey well i think i'm gonna cut it off there okay yeah i enjoyed it yeah a lot of interesting stuff to listen to very informative Thanks a lot for the time you spent with us, Wolf. Uh, we're looking forward to having you back again the next time we visit this segment, which will probably be in a couple months. Okay. I'll listen to the others, too. I'm an avid fan. Oh, it's good to hear. Thank you. We have a fan? Uh, yeah, it's, it cools things off. <laughs> I was just going to say. <laughs> so, so basically what you're telling fan. me is Storm just sits there and talks at you for a while. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I don't know how to respond to that. <laughs> After this, I'm going to go talk to him for a while. <laughs> and now for today's Dear Badgie, spotted hey. questions for stripey butts. Oh, hey. good lord. You fucked it up. So, anyways, 
And now for our continuing segment, Dear Badgie. Spotted questions. Uh, pardon me. See, you fucked it up too. <laughs> yeah, you screwed me up. Thank you very much. <laughs> Do we have a blooper type? We, we, we probably <laughs> should. I'm going to start um, building a blooper file. Anyways. And now for our segment, Dear Badgie. Spotted questions. Straight percent. That, that, that. Damn it. That, damn it. Damn it. You can't win for losing. Some more wine. No. <laughs> I'm out. Um, and now and for, now for Dear Spotted. Seth? Dear, dear Spotty. And now for our segment, Dear Badgie. Straight perspectives on spotted questions. Today's comes from Darvin on the Daring Anthropy Discord server. Dear Badgie, I accidentally growled at a stranger on a busy street. They've stopped and now are staring at me. What do I do? Well, Darvian, uh, just go with it, you know. Keep eye contact. Approach them slowly. Still growling. Then when they start to run, just bark like mad and chase, give chase. <laughs> the key there is to maintain that eye contact. You you cannot yeah. let them assert Exactly. Comment. You gotta give chase. <laughs> we are so gonna get somebody arrested. The barking is absolutely a must too, and it has to be a deep guttural. But see, what if they start barking back? Like if someone that same level of crazy. Um... Then it's playtime. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> or try to mount them. The Where We Are podcast does not actually recommend giving chase. Giving chase can lead to arrest and other dangerous things for which we're not liable. Kids, don't play in traffic. That's only for Seth. Are we done yet? I think we're done. <laughs> I think so too.